This is the Tech EU podcast, where we discuss some of the most interesting stories from the European tech scene. Subscribe to this podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever else you get your podcasting fix these days. In this episode, Andre Degler sits down with Molten Ventures' Vinoth Jayakumar. Hi, my name is Vinod. Uh, I am a partner at Molten Ventures. We are a venture capital fund and we invest in uh, later stage technology companies across Europe. Right. So, and uh, let's talk about yourself first, and then we move on to the actual activities that you are now performing. Uh, uh, what, uh, what did you do uh, before uh, joining uh, Molten, and uh, what brought you into this uh, industry in general at all? Fantastic. Thank you for that. So, uh, you know, I don't know how far back to go, but look, I was uh, born and raised in Malaysia, uh, spent a bit of time in Singapore, came to the UK for university, uh, I think now 18 years ago, if, mm-hmm. my, if my math is correct. Uh, I, I've spent the vast majority of my time in the UK actually doing a variety of things, mostly financial. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I qualified as a chartered accountant. I worked at a boutique management consulting firm uh, doing strategy consulting and uh, brand management for uh, financial services companies. And towards the later part of my career with, in, in, in consulting, I ended up becoming a small angel investor in a variety of tech companies. A lot of them were crowdfunded. Mm-hmm. And uh, what I found was I was interacting with the founders that I was investing in offline on the weekends with ideas about where to go and how to grow and how to think about pricing, how to think about margins, because I learned that in my day job. So I was applying it in my weekend side hustle with founders. Uh, and that kind of led me to meet a couple of venture capitalists uh, across mm-hmm. London. And, uh, you know, over a period of two to three years, I got to know what was Draper Esprit or DFJ Esprit at the time uh, quite well. And uh, I joined them as their first hire post um, IPO. Right. And I, I think I think you also uh, you had some contact with Draper Esprit. You mentioned it before, like way, way before you were uh, you were hired. Is that right? You're right. So uh, th- this is yeah. So th- this is an embarrassing but interesting story. Um, so I was this. I was this funny kid who showed up from Malaysia in London uh, in 2004 or five, and uh, I was at a university where there was a lot of interaction with investment banks at the time. Mm-hmm. So I showed up on campus, and like the first week was like meet City, meet a trader from City, meet uh, an M&A banker from J.P. Morgan, meet this uh, bond salesman from Bear Stearns. It was still Bear Stearns at the time, and it was one of the great uh, bond trading houses. Um, and I, I began to understand that I knew nothing about this world. Hmm. So I, I didn't know what bastards meant. I didn't know what the word Goldman Sachs meant and, and all of that. So I was, and, and some of the people whom I met on campus made me feel embarrassed about it. It's like, how can you not know that? It's like, cause I had no idea about, you know, what, what the world was going to look like. I just wanted to study and, and do well. Right. Uh, and what happened then is, uh, there was one day when, uh, when someone I knew who's a, who's a senior of mine, who was also from Malaysia, uh, we had an interaction with made me feel extremely inadequate. And from that day onwards, I decided that I was going to become the king of all things banking and alternative investments. I'm going to become the king of all the things I need to know. So anyone who needs to go for an interview would be able to ask me questions I can answer. So what's how are the divisions inside of an investment bank broken up? 
what are the different roles? What do they do? What do you actually do in day one and then year one, year two, year three? So through that, I then realized that there was this other side to the non-banking world, which at the time was called alternative investments. And uh, I didn't know the difference between a private equity fund or a venture capital fund or a hedge fund, but I knew that they existed as buckets. So what I decided is one year into my student uh, year at, at university, I decided that I was going to cold email a bunch of these alternative firms to see if I could get an internship. Mm-hmm. And uh, at the time, DFJ Esprit, as they were called, uh, they they actually kindly responded. It was Stu Chapman, one of the co-founders of the firm, who kindly responded to my email saying, hi, I'm Vinod, I'm a first-year student at so-and-so, and looking for an internship, I don't need to get paid, I'll do anything you tell me to do. And he kindly responded saying, oh, uh, hi, Vinod, thank you for reaching out to us, but sorry, we're not taking on interns. So that was my, and, and he was, I think, the one of, I probably sent something like 50 emails. Hmm. And probably he was one of two or three that replied with anything. Wow. And, and the note was personalized, right? It wasn't a, his exact uh, PA or anyone who sent it. It was him himself. Uh, and so that was the first time it stuck in my head. There was this firm called the FJS Free. I don't really know what they do, but I want an internship with them. And fast forward, uh, call it 13, 14 years later, uh, I completely forget about them. I forget about this interaction. And I become reacquainted with Simon Cook at uh, Draper Esprit, as it's now called. And then he tells me the story about something they're trying to build, where we're shifting away from the traditional 2 and 20, 5 plus 5 model into a patient capital balance sheet. And he, he tells me, I can't tell you too much because I'm, I'm held by uh, confidentiality. So I said, okay, that's fine. I mean, you know, we were just meeting every couple of months. Uh, and one day I pinged him and I said, I became an investor in, uh, in a fund called uh, Woodford Patient Capital. And he, he pinged me back saying, it's really interesting that you know what patient capital means. And I said, well, what I understand of it is that you, you remove the shackles of traditional timeframes. So you optimize for the size of outcome as opposed to speed of outcome, which is a very basic understanding of patient capital. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he said, I can't tell you much, but Google the press. <laughs> so I did. <laughs> so there was a leak, and it turns out that the, the firm was, uh, was going to IPO, and, uh, and, and I, you know, I'd become an investor in the fund that was going to anchor the IPO. So that was kind of the beginnings of how I connected, reacquainted myself to, to the firm. Right. And so you, so, so you ended up uh, joining uh, Draper Esprit and now uh, Molten Ventures and uh, your focus initially has been fintech. That, that's because of your background, right? Pr- uh, primarily background, but also passion. Just mm-hmm. genuinely interested, genuinely keen in the, in the frontier of innovation in payments, innovation in interaction with money. Uh, but look, I mean, you know, if, if, if your question is, how or why are we interested in fintech? Uh, you know, we, we're we're a we're a we're a broad fund. We invest across the entire technology stack, from mm-hmm. enterprise software to consumer to digital health to hardware, specifically in semiconductors. So when we think about fintech, it sort of straddles consumer and enterprise software. That's the mm-hmm. the, the very broad brush of, of where it fits. But my personal view is that actually we're broad, but we're actually thematic. So we're investing in B two C and we're investing in B two B. And in B two C. It is an interaction with money. It's the idea of crossing the trust chasm. And as a result of crossing the trust chasm, you're able to invent experiences which were previously unmonetizable that you can now monetize. That's what Revolut does. We're also investors in a company called Free Trade, which is the European quote-unquote mm-hmm. Robin Hood. Uh, we're investors in a company called Primary Bid, which straddles both B2C and B2B. Uh, now, coming on to the B2B piece, um, we've be- I think the last two to three years, we've been primarily 
invested in, in developing our infrastructure thesis in B2B. And really what it is, is, is the infrastructure software layer that underpins financial services and B2B mm-hmm. experiences that, that exist within the revolutes and the N26s of this world, which we're investors in. Um, and we've become very focused on a few thematic areas in there. So one is in uh, core banking systems, the other mm-hmm. is in payments, and the third is in uh, fraud and KYC. Right, right. And do, do you have your personal favorites in uh, in the portfolio now? What do you think would be a good reflection of this of this approach, reflection of this focus? I love I love all my children the same. So I, I don't <laughs> have any personal favorites. I love them all. But um, it's it's more the fact that uh, actually, as you go through the cycle, because we are in a in a heavily corrected market at the moment, uh, mm-hmm. we were in the peak of peak in November 2021. So just imagine the, the, the shift that we've gone through in the last five or six months or seven months. Um, what is interesting is that you tend to realize that uh, on, on, B, on, on B2B at least, there's resilience in how banks think about their infrastructure software. In mm-hmm. other words, during a crisis, they double down on infrastructure because they, that's the moment in which they need to become more resilient. And so banks spend a bit more capex during this period of time so it's a it's a boon for for companies like form 3 uh fintech os and thought machine all three of which uh we led around into in the last two to three years um in b2c it's a little bit more interesting it's a little bit more mixed because you follow the ebbs and flows of how people spend money uh mm-hmm. you know i mentioned the idea of interaction of money there is this idea of capturing income versus capturing spend so that you know between income and spend is quote unquote the flow of funds right so for when you get paid to how the money leaves your account, whether you're buying mm-hmm. an ice cream or whether you're paying for school fees, the, the way the money flows at each point in time, it either costs money or it makes you money. And so as a software company, you need to understand where you are on that stack. May, you may choose to lose money upfront and make money mm-hmm. on the way out. So for example, Revolut lost money when people brought money into the account because they were topping up with cards, but they made money on the way out because you were investing in crypto, you're buying insurance, you're using the card, which got interchange. So you have to think about when you're crossing the trust chasm, at which point does it make sense for you to turn on monetization, right? And I think as you go through a crisis, that evolution will result in you changing that mix as you go. You may now decide actually you charge up front and you don't charge mm-hmm. on the way out. So it depends on, on, on almost consumer behavior in, in B2C. But in B2B, completely resilient. Uh, I say completely, that's a bit of an overstatement, but really when I'm watching companies like FinTech OS, Pop machine form three they're all closing clients uh, mm-hmm. as we go through the through the crisis so so it's a positive sign i think for for how these companies will grow and are you are you generally optimistic if you look at the next uh, one two three years uh, what's going to happen uh, in the fintech industry every every venture capitalist has now become a macro analyst and a micro analyst uh i i would like to avoid that uh i mean yes i have studied some economics but it, it's more uh I think at the end of the day, uh, it comes down to building great products, great companies, and great teams. So what a correction will force you to do is to look deeper, so look harder, and to think more about where value creation happens. Because at the end of the day, um, what we're trying to do is kind of you know, go to where the puck will be, the sort of the Wayne Gretzky uh, analogy. Uh, and so what you really want to focus on is understanding where the value chain looks like, how can you imagine a future in which this company is successful, right? Rather than what goes wrong, because t- traditionally what happens in a crisis is you, you know, cut spend, cut burn, cut everything, reduce people, 
and all of that stuff. But you, you forget that the reason you exist is because it's all about the what can go right and how can you make it go right. The focus on doing those two things becomes a lot more intense for for, for us at uh, at Molten. Right, right. No, I can I can imagine. So, and in in addition to fintech, you are also now uh, busy with uh, with climate tech investments. So, how, how did how did that came about? Uh, was it is it in any way connected to to your uh, passion and background in fintech? It is. It is. Uh, so, I mean, first things first. Uh, a colleague of mine, George Sharma's, he leads on all things climate for us, and he's been excellent at uh, designing and building a deep thesis into exactly where we want to invest. I've become involved with him on the climate side, uh, partly because my personal belief is that at the end of the chain of a climate impact is a financial impact. So when you think about uh, measurement, whether it's a scope one, two, three from TC, uh, in terms of TCFD disclosure, those are all at the end of the day thinking about financial quantification uh, of your carbon footprint. Uh, if you think about the impact of climate disasters, they result in an insurance payout. And how do you measure insurance payout? How do you make it more real-time? We're an investor in a company called ISI, which uh, is uh, synthetic aperture radar imaging of the Earth, and they empower real-time payouts on insurance. Right. So it's 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 connecting the dots in terms of where we, we see financial impact and climate uh, coming together. But I will say that, I mean, we've uh, become invested in about four or five companies uh, uh, this, this year alone, actually. Right. Yeah, and you and you also mentioned it uh, when when we talk about it before, and you said there were announcements uh, uh, coming in uh, like in a big sort of uh, in a big heap altogether, like four or five companies. So did that actually come about, and why did it happen at the same time? Is it is it is there something special about this year that uh, so many investments of this kind are happening with Molten and elsewhere? I think that, I mean there's a there's a moment in time when the climate impact became much more real for many, many countries around the world. And off the back of the regulatory push of the, of the, of the, of the Paris Agreement, of TCFD, it's trying to understand what is the next shift in where entrepreneurship is going to go. And so mm -hmm. everyone's seen climate tech as a place to go. And there is a, you know, it's, it is a, it's certainly a hot space, no pun intended, uh, but there are some very large climate funds that have been set up like TPG Rise, Co2's Climate Fund. There's a host of them around the world. I think IP Group just announced the Climate Fund yesterday as well. Uh, now, going back to your original question of uh, why did they bunch together and, and which ones have we done, it's partly a function of just how deals have come across in the last, call it, eight months. And mm -hmm. also because of some of the ways in which the deals get done and how they, it's almost like just chance that they got uh, bunched together. Mm -hmm. Uh, we've become investors. Uh, the ones I think we've announced is we've become investors in a company called uh, Satellite Boo, which is building a satellite constellation for infrared uh, imaging of the Earth. So they are picking up on uh, thermal signals to understand emissions. Mm -hmm. uh, we've become investors in a company called Servest, which is a category leader in uh, physical asset risk quantification. Uh, we've also become investors in a company called B0, which is a carbon offset uh, verification platform and uh, the voluntary carbon markets proliferating has kind of made companies like uh, B-Zero very, very critical to the growth of that industry. I think there are another one or two that are not actually disclosed yet, so I won't be at liberty to say. 
Right, right. Now, this is very interesting. And you say, and you also mentioned a few new climate funds. And what I'm thinking is, isn't uh, every VC a climate VC uh, these days? Or isn't, at least, isn't it at least going to happen? Because like everyone uh, seems to have been declaring uh, their attention uh, to, uh, this, uh, to this segment of the industry over the past uh, year or even more. I think, you know, the, the short answer to that is yes. But I also think that the way in which investors approach this market is important. I think having, one, a deep understanding of how the world might evolve and how it's going to look 5, mm -hmm. 10, 15, 20 years from now, right? You, I mean, to be able to take that kind of outlook, you need to have a fund that actually unlocks that. So, Molten, we're a public listed fund. We're investing off the back of a balance sheet. We don't have those artificial caps. You know, so we can take a view on a company today that's going to be successful in 15 years from now. And we can be there for every step of the journey all the way through, right? And, and climate's not something that's going to get fixed overnight. We're talking about, you know, 1.5 degrees by, by 2030, 2040. It's the, it's, the, it's the line in which you've got to draw it into. So, yes, every VC has a climate-focused person or has a climate-focused fund. Uh, and they're all hunting the next generation of entrepreneurs. But I think there are very few funds that uh, actually really know what they want to do or what they want to look for. And there are very mm -hmm. few funds that actually can carry the weight all the way through in being able to be helpful to the entrepreneur, to have some thematic view of the world, uh, and to think about sort of what, is, what does good look like? Mm-hmm. I see. And uh, so you mentioned before that uh, with fintech, you look at the B2B, B2B and B2C uh, side of things. Is it also the way that you look at uh, uh, climate companies? So how do you how do you segment, how do you divide this industry to see uh, where your attention should be coming to? Yeah, so um, actually, so climate's a very, very big sector. They are, there's a huge amount of investments in renewables, for example, which we want, we're not involved with. Uh, there also is a huge amount of investment in hard assets. Uh, carbon sequestration, for example, which we're unlikely to become involved with, we're very much focused on the software enablement layer. Uh, and, my, and my colleague, George, who leads for us uh, on climate, has built out a detailed thesis uh, where we're looking at basically the measurement, the management, the offsetting, and the tracking, the ongoing tracking. These are the four thematic areas that we're going deeper into. And that's what's led us to the likes of Satellite Vue and Servest and P0 and so on. Mm -hmm. I think you've mentioned before that there are more than 70 companies in the, the area of carbon accounting uh, these days and, uh, that, and that you have not really invested in any of them. Uh, can you elaborate on that? Like, uh, why not? And uh, what, do you see? what do you see there? I think it's partly a function of, I mean, all of these companies are building interesting companies. They're all solving mm -hmm. what I would call the layer one problem. Right? The layer one problem is unlock, enable companies to do TCFT disclosure of their carbon footprints. Now, how do you typically do it? You get consultants involved. You have to go through an extensive exercise. It's pretty expensive, a lot of people time. But there is a software way in which you can just scrape and understand the footprint. So lots of companies are solving for the uh, scope one problem inside of TCFD, which is your direct mm -hmm. emissions. And usually they're then able to go and do the scope two piece, which is the indirect emissions. But where it's really, really hard is the supply chain piece, which is scope three. And actually, the biggest impact tends to be scope three. So, yeah, of course. so very often what happens is you, you solve the layer one, but you're not going to the layer two or you don't have an ability to do the layer two in a meaningful way because you've got to be able to do it in a, in a way that's traceable and auditable. Mm -hmm. So what we're finding is we're trying to back companies that can go the whole way. In fact, one of the investments that we haven't disclosed is in that space. 
which should be mm-hmm. coming out in the next couple of weeks. So that's what I mean by, you know, that number of companies being in this space. I think they're all doing good work. Uh, they've all got a mix of, you know, different kinds of revenue, like smaller clients and easy to win cl- type of clients. I think we're probably going to be a, a lot more focused on um, a little bit more of the harder to do stuff and the bigger contracts, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. And do you think Europe has any, uh, mm, do, do, do you think Europe has a chance uh, to become the forerunner in this uh, climate tech uh, space? I think what you're finding is, uh, I, I don't have the data and we'd probably have to look at the data, but I think what, you, what we're finding just anecdotally is the, 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 the types of entrepreneurs we're meeting uh, and the problems that they're solving is happening at the same time across the whole of Europe. It means mm-hmm. there isn't a concentration in Berlin or London or, or Stockholm. They're happening at the same time. These, clim- these carbon accounting platforms, they're happening all over Europe. That's a good thing because it's proliferating great talent to build software in a space that's almost green. So what we're trying to think about is also just how does that really impact the, the growth of entrepreneurship in, in Europe versus Asia versus America? I think you've also got to think about the propensity for corporates to actually comply with climate regulations and want to do TCFT disclosure. You're going to find that a large portion of that's probably going to be American. Uh, there's recently the SEC has announced uh, a couple of extra disclosure requirements. And, you know, that's going to be a boon for that market in the US. Obviously, the SEC doesn't regulate Europe. So when we see the same thing happening uh, in the future in Europe, I think you'll find that European entrepreneurs are, are there or thereabouts with, with the American counterparts. Mm hmm. Right, great. So uh, I wanted to move on uh, still, uh, since we still have a little bit of time, and talk in general about uh, your views on uh, VC, on the industry, on how everything works. And first, I wanted to um, talk about uh, something that has become a very popular uh, statement lately from many uh, different uh, VCs uh, that uh, uh, good VCs have to be operators. Like good VCs uh, have to have this entrepreneurial experience and need to understand uh, what the entrepreneurs are going through. And that's the age of uh, uh, the VC who has uh, never started a company uh, has come to an end. Like I, I, I may be, I may be exaggerating it a little bit, but uh, sometimes you read uh, certain publications and uh, this is more or less what you see. So what, what is your take on it? And where is the, where is, do you think uh, the space for the non-operational VCs? Yeah, I mean, um, <laughs> it's a, it's an interesting question because I think both sides of the argument are correct. Uh, and I think there's a highly contextual piece to that argument that's missing from the argument. It's not about more operational or more financial. It's about relevance to the point in time of what a company's journey looks like. So, you know, for example, some of the greatest VCs, uh, you know, Mike Moritz, for example, Sequoia, you know, he wasn't an operator. He was a journalist that became a venture capitalist and became very, very good at what he does. So I think actually what good venture capitalists do is they are great dot connectors, either backwards because they've studied history or forwards because they can imagine a a world in which they can build a company with you as an entrepreneur. Uh, And I think the best VCs, whether they're operators by training or whether they're financial uh, people by training, are people who can laterally think about connecting these dots. So I don't think there's a one-size-fits-all. I think there's a point in time for, for the relevance of the experience. Do you have a good example of this dot-connecting uh, impact that a good VC can have on a company? Um, yeah, I mean, I, uh, 
I'll try and use examples from uh, from our own world inside of Molten. So, so for example, what we operate at Molten Ventures is a very generalist partnership group. Every partner is um, they look after areas. So it could be a geography, it could be a product area. So I spend a lot of time in fintech. I spend a lot of time in Southern Europe. Uh, but that doesn't make me a specialist. So what we do is we try and cross-pollinate ideas across the whole group. So for example, my partner Stuart, uh, who led our investment into GraphCore, which is a uh, AI chipset company, will be cross-pollinating ideas that we learned from the manufacturing of chips into infrastructure software for banks. That is trying to do some lateral dot connection. Mm-hmm. It's like, oh, think about what supply, uh, what the supply chain here looks like. Think about what the, s- the sales cycles here look like. Think about all the incentive structures for people to do stuff in that in that industry. What are the dots you're taking out of here into into banking or insurance? Do they apply the same way to banking? Do they apply the same way to insurance? No, they don't. So it's being able to ask the questions that trigger these thoughts. And then what we do is when we come up with any insight, uh, we try and get founders connected. So we'll get uh, mm-hmm. Nigel Toon from GraphCore talking to, say, a Paul Taylor at, at Thought Machine, um, even, even though they're from completely different worlds. That is encouraging the idea that we might come up with interesting ideas about the future. So another case in point, um, um, so we, we've, we've become uh, investors in a company called uh, IndieKite, which is a decentralized uh, identity platform. Now, that is in its own right m- much more a Web3 blockchain investment. But actually, when you think about decentralized identity, there's a huge connection between that and fraud. Uh, because a lot of fraud tends to be about trying to uh, trying to authenticate identity identity of someone. So how do you then go actually thinking about blockchain principles, thinking about KYC, where do they connect? Right? Because companies are very single silo. They do what they do very well, right? But they when they get forced to think a little bit more broad about sort of where the ideas may come from, that's what we can do. And I think those are mm-hmm. two examples that come to mind from my internal experience. There are loads that I see on on boards of companies. Obviously, I probably am not at liberty to talk about them, but I think great, I mean, just going back to your original question, I think great venture capitalists are people who connect dots, regardless of what their right. backgrounds are. Right. And uh, is this also, uh, do you think, is this also uh, the uh, benefit of having a team uh, of uh, like in a VC fund uh, as opposed to having a, um, a solo GP or, or, or like a micro VC that's run by one or two people. Uh, where do you, where do you think this makes sense? What do you, and what do you think? Um, like where, where do the pros and cones of a team uh, lie for you? Great question. I think, um, I think there's an entire value chain in, in venture capital. I think my fellow venture capitalists will hate the fact that I use the word value chain, but um, it's, you know, there, there, there is a flow of funds, right? So there's the early stages of the company when it's founder hustle, it's sweat equity, and then there's friends and family, and then there's angel investors, and then there's pre-seed, seed, post-seed, series A, series B, series C. When you look at the, you, you know, your question about uh, solo GPs and micro VCs versus, you know, team-based VC funds, they don't operate in the same layer of that value chain. More often than not, the micro VCs and the solo GPs are early stage. Uh, and there are multi-stage funds like Sequoia, Lightspeed, which do all stages from seed all the way to pre-IPO. And then there are funds like Molten Ventures, where we are series A, B, and C, and we are potentially going to go into growth and pre-IPO. 
And then there are funds that just focus at, on Series A or funds that focus on seed. You know, one of the best in Europe is Seedcamp, which we're an LP in. So, you know, when you look at look look at the whole value chain and where people create value, there's a there's a there's a contextual um, relevance to the point in time when they add value. So, for example, Molten Ventures have a pretty extensive LP program run by my my partner Jonathan Sibilia. We're now an LP in 76 different funds. Uh, mm-hmm. And that's a pretty impressive portfolio that they built. And we built that in, call it three years, right? Or three and a half years, you know, and in there, there are funds that we backed who are micro VCs or solo GPs, you know, for example, Rodrigo at Hello World, uh, Lee Jane at Atelier. We've also backed Sriram Krishnan at uh, Kearney Jackson. These are people who, who are amazing talent spotters. They spot people early, they back them early, and they become great advisors to the company because they themselves have networks. So your question about team versus solo, even the solo has a network behind them. And that network will include people like us. So we're thinking about leverage all the way through the value chain. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I see. No, no, I see. I think this answers the question. Thank you. Thank you so much. And uh, b- before we go, I also wanted to go back a little bit to the question uh, I asked uh, before. And I think it took us yeah, 25 minutes into this interview before you first mentioned uh, blockchain and crypto and Web3. And uh, it's kind of surprising because I-, I thought you would talk about it earlier since uh, the first part of this conversation was about fintech. So can, can you, uh, f- to end the conversation, can you describe your attitude uh, towards uh, towards this part of the market is it part of fintech for you at all I mean, uh, by by virtue of, uh, of of being a fund that's been affiliated to draper fisher jefferson or tim draper in the us uh we've always been we've had a high affinity for crypto uh we've made a few investments so we're we're a, you know a major investor in a company called ledger in paris which makes the private key usb sticks but effectively they're an infrastructure mm-hmm. security software company rather than about the usb sticks um, I think our our attitude is we're very positively inclined in a similar way to climate to the software enablement layer. So we're spending time, for example, in blockchain enterprise platforms. Uh, IndieKite, which is an investment I mentioned before, is blockchain powered into decentralized identity. So there are very it's connected deeply into how we see the fintech world evolving. But we're looking at the proliferation of use cases. And when you think about the proliferation of use cases, what is the one? Could you be in the use case? So, for example, if mm-hmm. NFTs are becoming big, could you be a wallet? And two is, if NFTs are becoming big, could you be the infrastructure that unlocks the flow to the NFT on ramping and off ramping? Like, how does money flow from fiat to crypto to buy the NFT? And then, could you also be the infrastructure that unlocks how the NFT is minted and hosted on a blockchain? Right. So, those are the layers of technology that we're spending time in. Uh, we're in the middle of a, 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 a few deals in that space. Again, very early days. We're 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 in the flow of of getting them done so you're not really spooked uh, with uh, what's going on uh, with the uh, crypto and the markets I mean, right fundamentally, now fundamentally i think of currency and infrastructure as two different things uh you know okay. the fluctuation in currency whether it's bitcoin ether has been massive value drop in the some of the coins like luna but what we're i mean we were never investing in that we were always investing in the infrastructure behind what blockchain unlocks and what web3 does so that's not changed it's the same thinking that that is to invest in thought machine. That's going to take us deeper into into what blockchain can do. I see. I see. All right. Vinod, thank you so much. Thanks a lot for taking the time. It's been a half an hour. It's been a great conversation. Uh, thanks a lot for sharing all the insights and uh, good luck with everything you're doing at Molten. Thank you very much. This has been a lot of fun. Thanks for having me on, Andrew. 
And that's it for today's show. Thanks for listening. If you like our show, follow us today wherever you listen to podcasts. And if that place has a possibility to rate and review the show, please do that as well. Your questions, suggestions, and opinions are very welcome. Please send them to podcast at tech.eu and they will most certainly be ignored. <laughs>